0: insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Hi
1: there.
0: Oh,
2: hi. Hello. Hi there. Hi there. Hi there. I remember that. That's from a song or something, isn't it? Oh, come on. I'll give you one more. One more hint. Hi there. Ah, Peter Gabriel, big time. Nailed it. See? All right. Hey, by the way, there's this video making the rounds on Twitter. You should see it, Cyrus. Is a big honking fire truck spinning out of control in a neighborhood. Do you see that? Uh no. You have to send it to me. It's amazing. This thing, I mean, literally spinning out of control. It's a it looks like a slick street after it's rained, and it's in a neighborhood with houses close by each other. Here, I I just sent it to you.
3: All right, take I'll look a look at,
2: at it. Yeah, thanks. it's something. <laughs> Isn't that something?
3: Yeah. Should I should I share that?
2: I would, yeah. Right, Just yeah, I mean, sure. because it looks as though he's gonna take out a big That's chunk of a skill. house or something.
4: That whoever's driving that engine is is a very skilled driver. Whew, That's incredible. Yeah. That's a very heavy machine spinning out of control on a residential street.
2: Yeah. That's incredible. It looks like it might have hit a car. It looks like it hits that car. Really? Um, I didn't see yeah, a the car very I mean, in the right black before, one? Right before it lands perfectly in the driveway, oh. it, he might have clipped a vehicle. but um, he, did, he did take out a, a mailbox. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, it's, that's gone. He, that that could have taken out a house. Oh, gosh, yes. If
4: that would have kept spinning straight. Oh,
2: you're right. House. He does clip a car. That's probably what slowed him down enough that he didn't hit the house. Wild. Wild. I'd rather lose the front bumper oh, of yeah. a car than the side of my house. 100%. Yeah, do share that. Aren't you glad I showed that to you? Yeah,
3: thanks, Patrick. Yeah. You find the coolest things.
2: I'm always looking out for you, man. 888-914-9149, sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Let's get over to the Virgin Islands, as promised, and talk to Michael. Good morning, Michael, and welcome.
3: Hello, good morning, Patrick, and morning. love your show. I've listened, I've listened off and on for a good while, and, and I've learned a lot from you, and I've watched some of your stuff on the internet, too. So Well, thank so you. Thanks, and God bless Okay, um, my question is, because um, basically the, the very popular teaching is, you know, we hate, we see it on the TV everywhere, is, is that when a person dies, they go straight to heaven or straight to hell or such. A, but uh-huh. looking around, I don't see, I've looked through the Bible, I've looked through scriptures, I'm not an expert, but I have not seen, I see scripture that says otherwise, you know. So my question mm-hmm. in a nutshell Do we know anyone at all in the Bible who died and their spirit went immediately to heaven? In other words, is there anyone we know in heaven without a body?
2: Ah, okay, yeah. I would say definitely, and we can see an example of that among others in Revelation chapter 6. So if you um, you have a chance, take a look at Revelation 6 beginning in verse 9. I'll read it. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out in a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? When they were each given a white robe, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brethren should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So we see here they're referred to as souls. So they're disembodied souls. They're under the altar. They perished by by martyrdom, and they're aware of things going on in the world below, and they're wide awake and in heaven and talking to God. So okay, although we're not but, given a number there, we do yeah. know that it was, you know, probably a huge number of souls that are there. I would see that as an example.
3: Yeah, um, I think the issue with that though, the problem with that it would be that have we reached to the end because that says just during the fifth seal and those our martyrs. So that's not talk if you if we look at it that way, that, that's not talking about regular people who die every day. Plus, if they were given robes, that mm-hmm. means they must have a body to put it on. It's, it's you know, so Well, my, yes. my point is that, yeah, okay, go ahead. Yeah, I, they would have a body. I can
2: respond to those things. I can respond. Okay. So um, the one thing to take note of is that it's not the end because they're told that it's not the end. More time must go by. So this is not the end of the world. They're in heaven waiting, and they're told to wait longer. So we know, first of all, it's not the end. And as you can see in the remaining chapters, quite a bit more happens after this is told to us before we get to the very end when Jesus returns. That's one thing. The other thing is that they're, we're told that these are the souls of those who had been slain. And that's very clear that it's not referring to them as, as having bodies. And when it says that they were given a robe, a white robe, The souls in heaven, I I should think, have the appearance of having some sort of garment or clothing on them. Uh, When an angel appears, the angel appears clothed. doesn't mean that the angel has a body, because the angels don't have bodies, they're pure spirits, but yet they appear to us as if they had clothing. Uh, Moses and Elijah, when they appeared on the Mount, Mount Tabor in the Transfiguration, they of course were long, long, long dead. They were disembodied souls; they had not received their bodies back, and yet they appear to Peter, James, and John. And I'm quite certain that they did not appear naked. So, yeah. the you know I the should... idea of a robe as such doesn't mean that they had to have bodies there. So, go ahead.
3: Yeah, in a way, yeah. Sorry to yeah, you kind of prove my point. Uh, to me, all the people we know, we know at least four people definitely that the Bible speak about who are in heaven, who died on who. Who, were, uh, who lived on earth, and two of them died, and they were they had their body to go into heaven. One is Jesus, of course. Jesus got his bo- uh, yeah. uh, resurrected body to go to heaven. Awesome. And also um, Moses, the Bible in Jude, it says that Moses' body was fought over. So Moses' body, Moses didn't go to heaven without a body. And Elijah, when body was transformed, but Elijah and Enoch, also so at least two people who died who are in heaven they each went to heaven with bodies and two people who didn't die so so my point for what i'm seeing is that the bible those people were in heaven who we know for sure their names everything they didn't go to heaven without a body
2: well we know that enoch was said to to have been bodily assumed but we don't know for sure that he was that's more of a legend um we, in the case of Elijah, for example, he was cut up into the heavens bodily, but he didn't go to heaven yet because heaven hadn't been opened yet. I mean, if if souls could have gone to heaven before the crucifixion of Jesus, then there would really have, it would have been a moot point if people could have gone to heaven. So I grant you that there are people that we know were assumed into the heavens in some sense, but not into the heaven where God is. Um, I would also add to your point to make your point a little stronger that the Blessed Virgin Mary and Jesus both have bodies, and both of them are in heaven. So, I mean, there's there's no dispute on my part that there are bodies in heaven. I certainly believe that. But maybe I'm misunderstanding, Michael. I thought you were saying that there is no one else who goes directly to heaven.
3: If yeah, that's not okay, what you meant, yes, then maybe
2: um, I misunderstood you.
3: Okay, I guess to clarify, you know, the popular saying is that when people die, they go straight to heaven. I don't really see it in the Bible, because Jesus also Jesus... I, I I know that we will be we'll be given new bodies like like you read a little bit earlier mm-hmm. about the the fact that that you know the Bible said the mortal would become immortal and the corruptible. So I see that God trans so that we will be given these bodies to go to heaven and be you know for eternity. But in the meantime, from what Jesus appeared to be saying with, for instance, the story of Lazarus, he said, "Okay, um, right here I have." The, the parable of the sower, I guess I'll mm-hmm. do that quickly. The parable okay. of the sower seems to teach very clearly that that our reward and heaven and hell will be given when Jesus comes. He, he, he interpreted very clearly that the angel would come and separate the wheat from the tears, mm-hmm. also the sheep and the goat, and then we'll mm-hmm. be rewarded. So in the meantime, the Bible seems to say that we are... We are rested until Jesus comes, that no one just dies. Praise that if you die. Yeah, I think
2: what you're referring to is soul sleep. That's another way of describing it. Yeah,
3: that those who die
2: that those who die are in a sort of suspended animation and they're not in heaven. Um, I, I reject that view on biblical grounds, but I understand what you're what you're saying. And please know that's never been um, the way the church has interpreted these scriptures. The church has always understood that those who go to heaven after death, after that judgment, it's appointed unto a man to die once and then the judgment. So he's clearly awake and alive uh, after death. So he receives his judgment after death and then goes to where he's going to go. But let me give you another passage. You have that, a
3: lot of things. Okay, go ahead, sir.
2: Yeah, let me give you another passage that will help shed some more light on this. So in Hebrews 12, uh, there is a description of approaching heaven. And we see this in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, into innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is God of all, and to the spirits of the just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. So here in this passage that's describing not only heaven, but who is in heaven, we see it clearly to the spirits of the just men made perfect. This is their souls before they receive bodies, and they are in heaven with God, with Jesus.
3: Okay, just two quick things before I know you have a quick... uh, One is the story...
2: What do you think about that, though, Michael? I mean, that verse clearly disproves the theory of soul sleep.
3: No, actually, it doesn't. The Bible is full from Genesis to Revelation that says that says that we are asleep. Jesus Himself in, La- in the story of Lazarus said, "Lazarus is asleep," and he said- "Yeah."
2: But see, Lazarus—he was truly dead. The thing I would propose to you is that you're misunderstanding—that euphemism—to to fall asleep in the Lord or to be asleep in the Lord—is a euphemistic way of referring to death, because yes, I those who Okay, good. So, those who die in the state of grace and go to heaven, they're resting in heaven. They're resting with the Lord. doesn't mean that they're asleep or inert or unaware. They're very much aware of what's going on. But you had a final point. I'll let you have the final point, Michael. But I, I want you to know that that verse in Hebrews does indeed refute this notion of soul sleep. But. Maybe you don't agree with me, but I think it's pretty clear. So I'll give you the last word, Michael.
3: Okay, um, like Ecclesiastes says, and not only that, Isaiah, it says, um, the dead know that anything, there's praise not the Lord. It says so in Isaiah, in Psalms, in, in, over and mm-hmm. over, it says, but this last, this Lazarus, yep. Jesus said he was, but, but this last one is Jesus himself. Jesus said, mm-hmm. marvel not, John, John chapter. Five verses 28 29 marvel not at this for the hour is coming in which all all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth they that have done good unto resurrection of life and that yeah, have done that's to referring
2: good... to the general resurrection and that's completely in keeping with the biblical all teaching that all right, well, it's completely in, keep, in keeping. There's no conflict whatsoever, Michael. All those resurrection verses are pointing to the fact that in the end, the dead will rise, as it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. They will receive their bodies, and they will go to heaven. So what, the soul is already in heaven, and then will be joined with the body. I'll have to leave it at that, I'm afraid. But keep your eye closely on Hebrews chapter 12, because it directly refutes this notion of... That uh, the souls are just asleep, they're they're present and accounted for in hebrews twelve twenty three Thank you, And let's talk again. Um, we'll go to Chuck now in Edison Park, Illinois. Good morning, Chuck.
4: Good morning, Patrick. Love your show. Thank I have you. a question on intercessory prayer. I believe in intercessory prayer. Mm-hmm. but um my question is kind of like why why do we pray to one saint? like i I particularly at work uh, pray to St Joseph, you know, to go to Jesus, but why not just pay, pray to a whole bunch of saints, and then you have a whole bunch of saints interceding for you? And also, uh, kind of also, you can. one more is like, well, well go ahead, I'm sorry.
2: Oh, sure, why, why don't we just pause on that? I mean, there's no requirement to just ask the intercession of one saint. Um, you can ask the intercession of all the saints. All you holy saints and angels, pray for me. The Church does that in the Litany of Saints, for example. So we're not restricted or required to ask our brothers and sisters and the Lord to pray for us only by you know one on one on one we can ask all the saints in heaven simultaneously to pray for us. We do have maybe this is what you're referring to Chuck. We do have the pious custom of invoking the intercession of particular saints for particular things. So mm-hmm, that's it,
4: really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like so saint that Saint Joseph is fantastic for uh, work-related problems for me.
2: <laughs> you sure. Know? Yeah. So I understand what you mean, and that's a custom of recognizing the glory that God has given particular saints to do certain things very well. But it doesn't mean that for business issues you can only pray to Saint Joseph. Um, sure.
4: And I have one related question too. Sure. Um, now you know, in order to become a saint, you need a miracle. So why would you, like, why would I start praying to, and, and how do we even know how to pray to a, a, a like, I, I forgot the, the term, you know, like a good person who's on the road mm-hmm. to sainthood. Uh, Adele Bryce, I think, came to mind. I don't know if she's even up for becoming mm-hmm. a saint. But, like, why would you do that instead of a actual canonized saint? Why would you pray to that you know, individual?
2: Sure. Gotcha. So the, the miracle is not necessary to become a saint in a strict sense because everybody who goes to heaven is by definition a saint. But for the purposes of the process of canonization, both at the preceding level of beatification and then at the final level of canonization, the reason the Church requires a miracle is to be able to demonstrate that this person is in heaven and that he or she has interceded on behalf of the person praying before the Lord. And the proof of that intercession would be in the form of a miracle— that's the reason. It doesn't mean you can't ask canonized saints to pray for you. In fact, St. Paul is very emphatic on this issue in First Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all dignity and devotion. For this is good and pleasing to God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony to which was born at the proper time. So as we see here, because of Christ's unique mediatorship, we now are able to supplicate and pray for and intercede on behalf of and offer thanksgivings for other people because of what Jesus did for us. And, when you ask for those things, you could ask an individual member of the body of Christ, or you could ask all the members of the body of Christ, or a group of members. It's really something that you have freedom to do. You're not restricted one way or the other. But how did you phrase your last question? I want to make sure I'm answering the, the last question you just asked me. Could you restate that, please, like,
4: John? Well, yeah, I just was wondering, like I, I can't think of the, the young man in Spain, but I mean, before we come... When they're on the road to sainthood, you know, we Miracles, know
2: they're a good right. person, and uh, yeah. Um. So the miracle now that now that I have it back in my mind again, the miracle is required as a way to demonstrate that this person actually is in heaven, and and the kind of miracle has to be something that cannot be explained by science or some other earthly explanation, and this is one reason why in the cause of canonization, the church prefers that if at all possible, like atheist scientists or atheist physicians would be among those who would study this this purported miracle because they have no vested interest in trying to to approve it as a miracle. They would be more likely to try to disprove it as far as they could. And that's the reason why, is so we can know if this person really is up there.
4: But I'm backing it up just one last point. Before that miracle was even mm-hmm. out there, you yeah. have to make the decision to pray to this individual, I guess. So so I'm wondering why, you know, thinking about intercessory prayer, wouldn't it be better just to go to the the saint that you know? (laughs) I don't know. That's just my thought. Right.
2: Okay. So I understand your question, but I I think I just answered it. And so the reason why you would, so let's say, let's take the late great Archbishop Fulton Sheen. So. Mm -hmm. His beatification was derailed, and I think wrongly so, and probably because of a feud, a petty feud over who was going to have his body, which diocese would have it. But those things aside, the miracle for his beatification had already been accepted. And there's yet another miracle that would be required if ever he were to be canonized. So the reason why you would ask him to intercede on some thing that would require a miracle is so that it would be proven that it was by his intercession that's why you would ask st or well let's say blessed fulton sheen that's why you would ask him so that if indeed god were to grant a miracle through his intercession then it would be made evident to us doesn't mean you can't go to the canonized saints and all the other saints in heaven but the reason for asking for a particular blessed or someone who's declared venerable and has not been beatified yet is precisely so that a miracle could be associated with his cause for canonization. That's okay.
4: One. I'll ponder that, but I appreciate your, your answers.
2: You're welcome, Chuck. Thank you. These are weighty matters, and I'm glad you brought them up. Thank you. Quick timeout. We'll come back with more of the Patrick Madrid show on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Please note that you can call in. There's still some time. 888 914. 9149. I'll be right back. This hour sponsored by Christendom College. Send your child to Christendom College's high school summer program, the best week ever. Use promo code relevantradio and get 50% off. Spots fill up very quickly, so apply today at TheBestWeekEver.com. That's TheBestWeekEver.com.
0: Compelling insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's The Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. What's
2: this song called again, Cyrus? I remember I just don't remember the name. I have it written down as Calexico Corona 2. There you go. I think Calexico is the band, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, and then Corona is the song. That's good stuff right there. Reminds me of Gallup, New Mexico for some reason. Oh, yeah, yeah! That's right. Uh, let's go to Vicky now in Bakersfield. Hi, Vicki. Hi, good Hi, morning, Vicky. Patrick. Thank you for
0: taking my call.
1: You're I my sale. daughter has a question,
0: but I. <laughs> I had to drop her off at school this morning, and she just wanted to know why the Catholic churches are named after
1: saints.
2: The reason is because it's a way of invoking the the patronage of that saint. So it honors saints. It recognizes the honor that God has given to them. As Jesus says in, in John chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer, he says, Father, I have given them the glory you have given to me, referring to the saints. And so, A, it's a way of acknowledging that this person is a hero of, of God, a man, woman, boy, or girl, who is heroic in virtue and following Jesus. And so it's a way to honor them and, and commemorate them. And it's also a way to invoke their intercession in a particular way. So, like my parish is St. Patrick Catholic Church, and it's under the patronage of the great St. Patrick. So those are the two primary reasons why.
0: Okay. Well, I will be sure to have her listen um, when she gets out of
2: school today. And you could maybe use a a more mundane example by way of parallel, and that would be we often will name schools after significant figures in history, you know, um, Mm
1: -hmm. Washington
2: Mm -hmm. High School, Lincoln, you know, Lincoln Elementary School, or what have you. Mm -hmm. And it's a way of honoring the memory of those figures in history by naming things after them.
0: All right, perfect. Is there any particular way that a uh, saint is chosen?
2: Yes, yes. So going back to that passage I quoted to a gentleman earlier, the fellow who was talking about soul sleep, and I quoted from Hebrews chapter 12 where it refers to the souls of the just men, and that refers to, to men and women, made perfect so all of those human beings who die and go to heaven are talked about there. And, and they are, by virtue of that, saints. As it says in, in Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean can enter heaven. So to see God face to face, as Jesus said, blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. And the corollary to that is if you're not pure of heart, you will not see God. So those who are in heaven whose robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb as we're told, who are pure of heart, who are perfected in righteousness, as it says in in Hebrews chapter 12, Um, they are saints by virtue of that. Now, the biblical term is holy ones. Hagioi would be the Greek term, the plural term, and so they are the holy ones, and they're holy because God is holy And he communicates his holiness to them, and they stand in his presence, and they are imbued with his holiness. So, the first point is, everybody in heaven is a saint. Mm -hmm. There are those who are canonized saints, and this is in a situation in which the church, after investigation, will declare them to be worthy, not only of veneration, but also worthy of invoking their intercession asking them to pray for us. And the reason for that is the church is saying they are definitely in heaven. These people, this saint that we are canonizing is definitely in heaven. It's been verified by more than one miracle that cannot be explained scientifically. Their life was heroic, their virtue was heroic, or they died a martyr's death, or what, what have you. So that does not elevate... So let's say, as an example... Let's say, Vicki, that you died a happy holy death and you went straight to heaven and you're there with God and all the angels and saints. And you are a saint, biblically defined. Mm-hmm. And then let's say that over time there was a movement to have your to have you canonized as a saint. And a hundred years from now, the church canonizes you as saint. So now there are St. Vicki of Bakersfield parishes being named after you. You know, the St. Vicki of Bakersfield parishes new Catholic high school that opens up, named for you. Well, that's something that helps us here in this life because it identifies a man, woman, boy, or girl who's in heaven we can ask to pray for us. But it doesn't change your status in heaven at all. You don't get okay. a big party in heaven. Like, hey, guess what, Vicky, You're canonized. Come on up higher. It's not like that. You'll already be blissed out to the maximum that you will mm-hmm, be in heaven. in heaven. So canonization <laughs> helps us in this life. It doesn't affect or elevate the saints who are already in heaven.
0: Okay. All right. I understand. Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for explaining that, Patrick.
2: You're welcome, Vicky. I wrote a little book called "Any Friend of God's Is a Friend of Mine," and it's a, a treatise on the biblical doctrine of the communion of saints. So if you're if you're wanting to go deeper, I could recommend that to you.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I will look for that book and okay. have a very happy Taco Tuesday.
2: Thank you. You too, especially in Bakersfield. I know there's some awesome Mexican restaurants there. Um, how about uh, Macaria in Hanford, California? Hello, Macaria.
0: Hi, um, I just had a quick question about uh, regarding the uh, Daniel Fast. Okay. Is that something that Catholics can do? And if so, uh, should we follow it exactly? Or, or what can you tell me about that?
2: Well, I mean, I've never done it, but what I know is that in the book of Daniel, it describes how he does fast, and I'd have to go back and and read it to find out what the specifics of it are, but it would be a way of emulating the fast that he did and the kind of foods that he did without. Um, Sure, Catholics can do that. Nothing inherently problematic about that. If you really want to try a fast, though, and I've never done this, I don't think I have the fortitude, the Jesus fast... (laughs) is no food for 40 days. I uh, can't imagine oh, wow. doing that. But that's the fasting of all fasting right there.
0: So I have one other quick question, if that's okay. Sure, but yeah. fasting, I've always um, thought, you know, uh, we're blessed here in America with uh, an abundance of food. And if we fast, is that kind of a sin? Because we have so much food and we're saying no to certain things? Uh, or no. am I seeing that wrong?
2: well i would i would humbly say you you probably are seeing it wrong there's no sin in not doing something um, and I, i'm not talking here about a sin of omission where you should do something but you don't it it would be sinful if you took it to the point where you harmed your health or you killed yourself by mm-hmm. fasting so much that you died i think that'd be pretty hard to commit that sin But if you were to fast to the point of damaging your health, sure, that could be sinful. Um, Okay. But most people don't have that wherewithal to fast like that. But if you say, I'm not going to have, I'm I'm not going to eat food today, or I'm not going to have these foods today, there's no sin in that by refraining from something that's otherwise good. Okay. Yeah. I got it. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah, you're most welcome. And with Lent nearly here, fasting is definitely something uh, that we will be thinking about and doing for a couple of days. So just a quick review with Lent approaching. There is um, no meat, so we abstain from all meat on Ash Wednesday and all the Fridays of Lent, including Good Friday. And on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, you also fast. And I believe, I need to double check this. I believe that the upper age range is 60. It might be a little bit higher than that. I have to go back and look. So if you're above that age, you're not obliged to fast. You are obliged to abstain from meat though. There's no age limit on that. And then there's a lower age limit. I think it's below 14 for fasting. But the um, abstaining from meat applies regardless of age. So when it comes to the days of fasting, that would be Good Friday and Ash Wednesday at the beginning of Lent. And the U.S. bishops are very clear on this. That involves, you can have one full meal and you can have other food during the day that doesn't amount to another full meal. There's no question about calories or grams or uh, volume or quantity of food. It's This is something that you are... Perfectly free to determine for yourself. It's just simply a rule of thumb. Whatever you would typically have is what you would call a full meal. You can have that, and then whatever food you have that is that doesn't amount to a full meal, uh, that's a full meal as you describe it. And obviously, within the spirit of the law, you don't want to say, "Well, I'm going to have a pan of brownies and a half gallon of ice cream and uh, you know a roast beef sandwich, and I'll call that a full meal." Obviously, that defeats the purpose. But what you would ordinarily consider a full meal, um, but no, there's nothing said or even implied about things like calories or quantity or anything like that. That's the freedom that you have to make that determination, and that's coming in uh, in Lent. Eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. How about Trish now in Alvin, Texas? Hi, Trish.
1: Hi. How are you? Can you hear I'm me? I'm doing well,
2: thank you. Yes.
1: Oh wonderful um i've been listening to your show now for about a year and a half and i try to tune in every single day um mm-hmm. my question is since we're talking about going to heaven heaven uh hell or purgatory um if you're a judge when you're judged by god after you die and your soul goes wherever mm-hmm. let's say it goes to heaven will you recognize people who've gone before you that you loved and 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 live yes,
2: with? yes, and how you, would you will. Be
1: possible?
2: Well, in your disembodied soul, you will, in a way that hasn't been explained to us, you will be what? visible to and recognizable to other souls in heaven. So you're going to, to be known as who you are. Now, what does this mean exactly? Uh, if you are... If you are a disembodied spirit, we can't see disembodied spirits with our our eyes unless God permits it, which would mean that the spirit would need to appear in a form that we can understand. So take Moses and Elijah. I referred to them a few minutes ago in that conversation with the gentleman earlier. They were long dead and on the Mount of Transfiguration, where the Lord is transfigured before Peter, James, and John, who is with him, but two disembodied spirits. And they appeared in a, a manner that Peter, James, and John knew who they were. They And they had never seen Moses. They had never seen Elijah because they were dead long before Peter, James, and John were alive. But yet they were, they were recognizable to them as who they were. Now, we're not given a description or an explanation about how that happens, but we know that it happened because they recognize, oh, this is Moses and this is Elijah. So we could say that in heaven... When you get there, your loved ones will know you, and, and, okay. and they'll recognize you, and vice versa. Well,
1: that's, that's a peaceful feeling to know, especially. Um, what about yeah. purgatory? Well, well you, it's a
2: little more murky there because there's so little told to us about that in,
1: okay. in
2: Divine Revelation. Unlike in heaven, we have so much more to go on. We're told much right. more about heaven. But what drawing plans? upon the fathers and some of the doctors of the church who have commented on this, I think something similar is the case in in purgatory. And here's how we can know this. I mean, here's how I think we could arrive safely at the conclusion that they can recognize each other. And that is if you look at Luke 16, where Jesus is telling about Lazarus and the rich man. Well, rich man goes to a place of fiery torment. Lazarus goes to the place of tranquility with Abraham and the other righteous of the Old Testament. You remember this story, right, as Jesus tells it? Right. Okay. Well, the rich man recognizes Lazarus. He also recognizes Abraham. Now, he had never met Abraham. Okay. He he had never seen Abraham because he was long gone before the rich man was alive. And yet they recognize each other. So there, from Jesus' own words, we can see in the afterlife that the rich man knew who Lazarus was, and he knew who Abraham was. And, okay. and these are the kind of biblical clues that we could draw upon to say, is it possible that in purgatory they recognize each other? I think the I think it's reasonable to say yes. Now, what about in hell? Right. I think a case could be made.
1: What I'm sorry? What? I
2: said I was going to ask that next
1: if we had a little more time.
2: Yeah, well, we do have to take a break, but I'll I'll end on that note. We have, I think, a little less to go by on that issue, but I think a case could be made based on some of these biblical themes that we're seeing here. That if the rich man were in hell, and I think most commentators assume that he was in hell, well, he recognized Abraham. So, if jesus is is describing this to us in a way that extends to hell also, then it seems like, yeah, they can recognize each other. And let's hope okay. we never, ever find out. I have no plans to ever find out, Trish,
1: Correct. at least not firsthand. Correct right well thank you so much for the information and i love your show i love all the shows on relevant radio um but god bless you thank you patrick god thank
2: bless you. you trish we sure appreciate your phone call and thanks for listening to the relevant radio network this show included and i'll be right back with more right after this all of you who are holding thank you for your patience stand by and i'll be right back with you right after this Today, we'd like to thank Tom, who's listening in Illinois, for donating his 1978 Slick Craft boat. Whoa. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com car. That's relevantradio.com slash car.
3: tacos. Don't forget the beans on the plato. I like to eat, Yo no estoy flaco. Yeah, I'm, chubby, pero I'm
0: still guapo. Uno, dos, Patrick Madrid is on Taco Tuesday. Coast to coast on Relevant Radio. Taco Tuesday, my favorite
2: day. That's, the That's right. right. Happy Taco All Tuesday. Away. Hey, Bill Moody, uh, thank you. Saw what you put on Twitter. I appreciate that. So just to recap on the issue of fast and abstinence during Lent, this is from the U.S. Catholic Con- I'm sorry, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. We'll get a link posted this for you so you can share it if you want to. Ash Wednesday and Good Friday are obligatory days of fasting and abstinence for Catholics. In addition, Fridays during Lent are obligatory days of abstinence, referring abstinence from meat. For members of the Latin Catholic Church, the norms on fasting are obligatory from age 18 until age 59. So that's where I was saying. I think it's 60 and above. You're not obliged by the law to fast. You can, and you're encouraged to do so, but you're not required to do so. When fasting, the bishops say, a person is permitted to eat one full meal as well as two smaller meals that together are not equal to a full meal. Now, this, by the way, is very closely uh, worded. It's not exactly verbatim, but close to verbatim from what Pope Paul VI had decreed in in a document called Penitemony, which is an explanation of the requirements for these disciplines during Lent regarding fast and abstinence. So, once again, referring back to what Paul Paul VI had said in Penitimene, when fasting, you're permitted to eat one full meal as well as two smaller meals that together are not equal to a full meal. And you're the one who makes the determination, well, what is a full meal? What is... A partial meal that doesn't add up to a full meal. It has nothing to do with calories. It has nothing to do with grams or weight or content. Um, Everybody can understand what is a full meal and what would be snacks that would not add up to a full meal. The norms concerning abstinence from meat are binding upon members of the Latin church from ages 14 onward. So even if you're 60, 65, 70, it still applies in in those upper ages. Um, If possible, the fast on Good Friday is continued until the Easter vigil as the Paschal fast to honor the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus and to prepare ourselves to share more fully and to celebrate more readily his resurrection. Now, that part there, probably many Catholics are not even familiar with it, it's not obliging you to fast from Good Friday until Holy Saturday night. It's just saying that it's a beautiful custom, and you're encouraged to embrace it if you want to, and if you can. Not everybody can do that. So those are the the rules as set forth, first by Pope Paul VI and then echoed by the U.S. Bishops' Conference. Uh, Let's go to Sarah now in East Bethel, Minnesota. Good morning, Sarah. Good
5: morning. Um, My question is about Leviticus 19, um, let's see, chapter 20. And then uh, it's under under the thing of punishment for sexual immorality. Uh-huh.
2: Do you mean and, verse twenty? Uh, Leviticus nineteen oh. twenty. If a man lies carnally with a woman who is a slave, is that when you're thinking of?
5: Yeah. Okay. Well, well, no, not. Oh, I'm sorry. So it was I think eighteen. If a okay. man lies with a woman during her menstrual period, right? And uncovers okay. her nakedness, right? Is Is that still, like, so what I'm not understanding is, like, I I understand that all this stuff is, like, a sin, but, like, Mm -hmm. is
1: that one still a sin?
2: (laughs) So Leviticus 18, and which verse is that? That's verse uh, 12, I think.
1: It's Leviticus
5: 19.
2: I just quoted Leviticus 19, but you're referring to Leviticus 18, and that is, that would be, it's a long section here. So that goes from verse eight regarding your father's wife. And let's see, then the verse you mentioned or that you alluded to is verse let's see.
5: Well this is I don't know if our Bibles are, are like can be different or because no, like, the this same. is
2: No, they're the same. Yeah. So the verse you're alluding to is verse nineteen. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanliness. Okay, So there's a long section here that deals verse after verse after verse with variations on this theme. So, uh, no, that does not apply. This is part of the mitzvot, which was the 613 ceremonial laws that were enjoined upon the Israelites by Moses in the ceremonial law. This was one of them. And those things have been abrogated, and they're no longer incumbent. Now, there are some things in the mitzvot, that are definitely permanent, like don't sell your daughter into slavery or, or to prostitution. That's going to be a permanent feature of the moral law.
5: Yeah, some what, of these, makes that, what makes all some of this stuff permanent and then some not?
2: Because um, combining fabrics of two different types into a single garment do not have a moral value in them. Or um, eating shellfish or pork do not have a moral value to them. And so these are examples of things in the mitzvot or the, the ceremonial laws that were provisional. They were, they were for the Jews during the time of the Mosaic law, but we were freed from those most all of those things. Now, there are some things in those commandments that are not merely ceremonial, like thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, Uh, Thou shalt not sell your daughter into prostitution. And the reason is because those are part of the moral moral law that is never merely provisional. It's not merely temporary. Thou shalt not kill is permanent. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: the difficulty is the way they're presented alongside each other in Leviticus 17, 18, 19, etc. It could give the misimpression that this is all temporary. Like where it says you can't cut your sideburns. Well, yeah. you, you can, but in, in, under that law, you are not permitted to do so, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, as to your question about verse 19, about the monthly cycle, um, these are things that are no longer under pain of sin. So, if a married couple, for example, were to do this, it would not be committing a sin. If that's the question you're asking me.
5: Basically. But I'm also wondering why, like, just like you said, all of them are put together and then you're like, mm-hmm. well, we're not, you know, some of them we don't observe and some of them we do or, you know, I right. mean, we don't well, make I can tell to death you. if they sleep with an animal or whatever that, you know. Sure. But.
2: And you notice that in the very next verse, verse 20, and you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. So... There's an example, they're side by side here. So in verse 19, there is no moral value one way or the other to the monthly cycle. There is a moral value, and it's negative, of course, if you have carnal relations with your neighbor's wife, or husband, for that matter. True. So so there's an example where we can see in verse 20, this is rooted in the moral law, God's eternal law, and it's permanent, therefore. But in verse 19, this is something that because it doesn't have a moral quality unto itself, like, as I said a moment ago, eating pork does not have a moral quality unto itself. But it was part of that provisional law of Moses. I wish (laughs) that they had been grouped separately. It would make my job a lot easier, and yours too, because we could more readily see, okay, these are the things that are temporary. These over here are the things that are permanent. Mm -hmm. but it it wasn't given to us that way in scripture. So we have to look closely at it so we can see which category any given one falls into.
5: Yeah. Okay. Does that make it a
2: little clearer? I hope.
5: Yeah. A lot clearer. So, okay. I'm glad. I'm glad.
2: Well, that's good. These are important, important topics that we don't often talk about. So I'm glad you raised it.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Same with the, um, one more question is in mm-hmm. also in Leviticus, the, when he talks about keeping holy the Sabbath day mm-hmm. and oh, now I can, or like the day of atonement. So mm-hmm. it's Leviticus 23.
2: Mm-hmm. And what about that?
5: 26. Like he says, um, You shall not do any work on that day for it's a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord, your God, for whoever is Mm -hmm. not afflicted, blah, 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 blah. Um, You shall keep this forever. Yeah. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. Right. So I get, we have to keep Mm -hmm. Sabbath, the Holy day. Mm -hmm. And according to what God is saying, like, I don't observe that hardly at all, like the way that he wants it to be observed, I think. I mean, we go to Mass and then mm-hmm. go shopping at Walmart for our groceries sometimes for the week, and I always think, I feel like we shouldn't be doing this.
2: Yeah, this is something, this is an important issue here because we we as Catholics in Jesus, we, have, we observe the same commandment, keep holy the Sabbath day, but the day that on which we observe it, has been transferred to the first day of the week, to month, to Sunday, because that's the day on which Jesus rose from the dead primarily. I mean, that's the primary reason. So we do observe that commandment. It's an eternal commandment, that's true, but we observe it under the authority of the church on the first day. A parallel to that I would offer you would be the eternal commandment for circumcision, which the Lord enjoined as a permanent or perpetual commandment that men should, well, you know, male children um, should obey. Well, we don't practice circumcision anymore either. So that has been, that that command by God is observed, but in a new and higher way through baptism. So oh. this is where we can see that some things, even though in the Old Testament, they are described to us as eternal, and they are, but not eternal in the same way, or, or following the same exact pattern. So, I would say that baptism would be a good example, as it replaced circumcision, which God originally said was a permanent commandment, and it is still permanent, but it's it's observed now in in the higher way with baptism. Oh,
5: how interesting! Okay, yeah, all right.
2: These well, things are indeed interesting, that's for sure. Well, I'm glad we had a chance to discuss it, Sarah. And thank you. Yeah. appreciate your time. 888-914-9149. Uh, how about, let's see, um, 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 let's go to Brian in Little Rock, Arkansas. Hello, Brian.
4: Police, it tackles, Patrick.
2: <laughs> thank you. And to you as well.
4: Uh, quick question, so... You know, the news over the decades has gotten worse and worse and
5: confusing. Mm
4: -hmm. I'm wondering if you can recommend a reference. This is in regards to the Middle East and Israel. You read all these reports on the news that say, well, Israel was not the home of the Jews. It's only been there since the 60s or the 50s. Yet in Scripture, we continue to hear about Israel, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the time of Jesus. And so obviously there's no—I can't find a news source to trust. But when you get into conversations to try to correct— you know, yep. the record for people. So can you recommend a good resource that kind of the history of Israel and the Jewish people?
2: I I would need to do a little bit of prep work to give you something that I can have confidence in. So why don't I put that on my to-do list and I will try to get back to you with something on that tomorrow. Um, there are many okay. verses that allude to this and you can even do something as simple as a word search. But for example, in Ezekiel eleven seventeen, therefore, Thus says the Lord, I will gather you from, people, from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And there are many examples of those kind of statements in the Old Testament that um, are brought up today, but sometimes people say, well, that's not what that means, and it's a whole complicated issue. So I'll do this, Brian. I will locate some resources that I think I could have confidence in recommending and try to do that tomorrow, okay? Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, until then, I'll pray for you. Please pray for me. God bless you.
5: Adios, amigos.